welcome to the New Mexico News Podcast, headlines and stories from the land of enchantment. Brought to you by KRQE. Here's Chris McKee and Gabrielle Burkhart. So Chris, have you ever taken one of those genealogy or ancestry tests to learn more about your own family tree or history? I know that my mom did. I have a few family members as well who have taken those genealogy and ancestry tests, though, for their dogs. They have done the yes to figure out what the um, breed. Yeah, exactly. The background of their dog was. So it looked like a chihuahua. And guess what? It was a chihuahua. So, oh my yeah, that is, I know that's probably not the answer you expected. But. No, it isn't. Okay, it was. did not know this was a thing. Yeah, okay. no, it's out there. So right. yeah, I, I understand though. You know, some people want some more detail and background, whether it's their pet or maybe their family members as well. So I get yeah. it. I haven't done it myself, but yeah. I'm intrigued. There. My husband's family was got like very into it. I think when the ancestry kits became popular and. But his family, I feel like, was already pretty good at tracking family trees and were always telling me factoids about their history. I don't know a lot about beyond my great grandparents. So yeah. I feel like, I don't know, it'd be interesting. There's, There's still time. Out there, yeah. There's more to learn. And who knows, maybe taking one of those genealogy tests could potentially help solve a crime, but we'll get to that. Yeah, in our generation, we've seen a lot of technological advances and ways of integrating new technology into our lives and workplaces. But I think one of the more interesting ways technology is making improvements in the ways we operate, I think really it is in crime solving. Yeah, and let's get straight to our guest this week. Joining us in the KRQE studio is a returning podcast guest. He was the Bernalillo County District Attorney, now New Mexico's Attorney General, leading the newly named New Mexico Department of Justice. Raul Torres, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Before we get down to the topic of the day, how's it going in your new role as the state's attorney general? Are you settled in since you've took the helm in 2023? Yeah, I mean, the the first year in a new administration in transition is always a little disruptive, right? Because you're you're not just learning the ins and outs of a new agency, but you're sort of resetting the culture and resetting priorities. Every administration does that. And one of the... The things that I really enjoy about the attorney general's office is that unlike the district attorney's office that just had such a crushing caseload, this office affords us a little more time and space to identify long-term priorities and big projects and gives us the opportunity to try and execute on those. In addition, we just have a much broader portfolio, right? When you're as district attorney, you're sort of deep in the trenches, but it's it's mostly crime day in, day out. This gives us the opportunity to engage in environmental protection, consumer protection, public safety issues, convening experts on a variety of different policy areas. So we've done everything from stream access to to visiting treatment facilities in McKinley County. And so I just really relish the opportunity to do that. And I'm loving this job. I I tell my friends all the time, especially those of them that are lawyers, that I I think for an attorney, this is the best best job there is. Okay. Well, that's good to hear. And your office recently announced the creation of a first of its kind dedicated cold case unit that I want to talk to you about today. Mm -hmm. It'll work with different local law enforcement agencies, it sounds like, to try and solve some of those older crimes that have gone cold. What led to the creation of this unit? 
Are there particular agencies that don't have enough staff or resources to work cold cases like this? Yeah, it, it, the reality is that most smaller agencies, police departments, sheriff's departments across the state don't have the kinds of, of dedicated units or resources that maybe the Albuquerque Police Department, for example, or the New Mexico State Police have to focus on those cases that have that have sort of hit a dead end. I think, the frankly, the real origin story of, of how this came together really starts from the work that we did at the district attorney's office and specifically the interest that we had in creating a unit that was really at the leading edge of forensic science, specifically forensic genetic genealogy, as a new way of, of solving those cases. And, and that story really started with my awareness of how they apprehended the Golden State Killer who had terrorized Northern California and communities all over the state for decades and was connected to numerous sexual assaults and homicides. And they were never able to really close that case. And along came this new technology and this new approach. And they were able to apprehend somebody who, you know, by the time they took him into custody was, a, was an elderly man. And it was just this amazing moment where police officers and prosecutors were able to reach out to family members who I think had given up hope decades before and say, we've, we figured this out. We found who this was. And so we created a unit that specialized in that at the, at the district attorney's office. We were the first agency in the state to use that approach to solve a case of a, a sexual assault that had occurred years before. And we identified the suspect using that method. And then we were able to actually clear and identify others and I'm very proud of the fact that district attorney's office is continuing that effort and still identifying new suspects. But what I, what I realized is that now that I have a role to play in trying to bring new public safety tools across the entire state, that there's a lot of smaller agencies that just didn't have the capacity to do it. And so that's why we decided to make this a priority. It doesn't necessarily sound like this is super different from the idea of cold case units in the past, but more of just filling the gap in some ways as well, although the technology component does make this a, a different sort of new era type situation. But I guess with that in mind, what kinds of cases are you focused on? Well, right now we are focused on cases where we can use forensic gen genetic genealogy to provide new leads. It's not that we won't support other investigations that have gone cold where maybe they don't have the kind of DNA samples that we're looking for. But at, at the outset, we're primarily interested in using this technique and applying it to, to homicides and sexual assaults that have occurred in mostly smaller communities, smaller counties that haven't had access to the resources, don't have the money to pay for it, the testing involved and the contracts that we have to engage in with genetic experts and, and genealogy experts, it, it can be very, very expensive. And so we have the ability to bring those additional resources and commit investigators, some of the same investigators that were the first to crack cases in the DA's office, they've moved over and then worked for me in the attorney general's office. So this is a team that already has experience in this space. And it's exciting to be able to try and offer that resource we're very careful and mindful not to create, you know, a false hope or expectation for families. You know, we've dealt with families for so long that have dealt with the trauma of not only losing somebody or having been the victims of, of crime that's impacted their family, but then having the 
reality of not knowing who the perpetrator was and not having any answers and being frustrated. And so we don't want to add to that frustration, but I'm, I'm actually very confident that there, by the time we're done, there will be some significant victories for this unit in solving cases that have confounded local law enforcement for years and, and possibly decades. So far, it sounds like your office has accepted six New Mexico cold cases to work on. The oldest ones are from the 1980s. It sounds like the plan is to first focus on forensic genetic genealogy to try and generate new leads. So that means using things like DNA and popular genealogy testing sites that the public uses to help identify suspects. Is that right? That's right. And then how exactly does that process of using genealogy work? So the, the way it typically works is that when there is an unknown assailant and there is a DNA sample that's collected from the scene, what, what law enforcement is trained to do is immediately upload that sample into the national DNA database, the CODIS database that's been established by the, and run by the FBI for years. The problem is, is that oftentimes there isn't what you know law enforcement calls a hit in the system. And so that means that whoever the likely assailant is in that instance hasn't had the kind of contact with law enforcement in the past that their DNA sample would have been uploaded into the database. And what that usually results is it's just a dead end. Well, what forensic genetic genealogy does is take the same commercially available process that a lot of people have engaged with in in trying to determine their history and their background and try to use those open source systems to help identify a suspect. And, and this really became a tool for, I think, a lot of people who were adopted and really didn't have any understanding of who their biological parents were. And then when the technology evolved, they started to upload their own genetic information without any real guidance, maybe from their adoptive parents saying, I don't know who my family is, but I'd like to find out. There are open source databases like GEDmatch and others where you go on to that platform, you consent, and this is a really important thing because I know people are always concerned about privacy and the right to be concerned about privacy, but anyone who's uploaded their sample consents to have law enforcement have access to it if they want to potentially to solve these crimes. I don't think most people, frankly, think that's probably going to be a likely outcome. And I think a lot of folks have been surprised by the fact that maybe a distant relative is somebody who's, you know, pops up on the radar of law enforcement. But what that then does is you upload that genetic material. And based on that, you can work with genealogists to try and identify what a likely family tree, what common ancestors they are. And so we use the exact same system except we take an unknown person's DNA, we upload it to the system, and usually using pretty complex algorithms and, and systems that these databases have in place, they say this is a likely common ancestor. So, for example, Angel Goudelet, who was the, the person that we apprehended for a sexual assault here in New Mexico, he was first identified as being connected by a common ancestor to somebody that went back several centuries and we found a currently living distant cousin that was living in Southern California. They reach out to that person, they gather information about their family history and they start to narrow down what the likely family tree is. 
And then they move forward in time from that common ancestor to the present day. And they start looking and they say, okay, these are the members of that family that still live here. This person's too old. This person's too young. It's a male, not a female. And they narrow it down to a a list of potential suspects. They do additional investigative work. They narrow it down further. But then before any kind of arrest is made or the investigation moves forward, they actually collect a second sample from that likely suspect and they do a a direct comparison. So they don't just rely on the genetic history and the family tree. They use that to narrow down the likely suspect. And then, and in the case of Mr. Goudelet and others, it's usually somebody has discarded something in a public place, right? They're drinking out of a water cup. They're you know, eating at a restaurant and they use a fork or something like that, that is then collected. The DNA is tested. And then only when that point to point match says, yes, this is the same person that we effectuate an arrest. And so it's, it's really the kind of thing that 10, 15, 20 years ago, this was science fiction. I mean, it just, it, there was no way for anyone to figure these things out. And what we realize is that we, we are living in a short window of time where there are still a lot of samples from the 70s, the 80s, the 90s that are sitting in evidence, either in small jurisdictions or at the state lab. They were uploaded to look for a CODIS match, maybe in 92 or 93, that came back negative. They ran out of leads and the thing's just been sitting there. And so what we're now doing is going across the entire state looking for those things. And if you look at this nationally, they are solving, they're, they're solving cases from the 50s. And the 60s, there are, there are people who had a child murdered in the 50s and 60s, and they're almost, you know, either dead or the next generation is still waiting. And they said, hey, we've identified people. They've even identified people as the, the murderer after that person has passed away. But it still brings some answers and some closure for these families. Yeah. So I want to talk just a little bit more about the case you just brought up. You know, you've had success here in New Mexico using forensic genealogy, as you mentioned, when you were the Bernalillo County District Attorney. Angel Goudoulet's case, he was arrested in 2020, charged with a five-year-old rape case. That case was left unsolved for years until investigators uploaded their suspect's DNA profile into a commercial database similar to Ancestry.com. Ultimately, Gurulay pled guilty to two counts of rape and was sentenced to 12 years. But ultimately, how did knowing that family connection through the database work exactly in helping you to identify him? If you could simplify, like, what does that connection tell you guys? Well, the, the first thing, again, is it identifies a common ancestor. And what's fascinating for somebody like me who is, you know, just big into history, I'm big into understanding where my own family comes from, is it's usually not a connection of a father or a grandfather. It's usually several generations back, 1600s, 1700s, those sorts of things. And what what then happens is someone in that family line, that family tree has already uploaded their DNA into the system. And then they've also provided access to their family tree. So you have both the sample and the family tree. And so a genealogist can, can take that, those two pieces, those data points and say, okay, we think that this known person, right? This innocent person, or this person's just trying to do some research about their family. 
they actually have an ancestor in common with this unknown, likely assailant from, let's say, the 1700s. Let's follow the various family lines that move forward in time from that common ancestor and then narrow it down to, hey, the suspect in this case, so we get a lot of information from the victim. They say, well, this is a male about this age, wearing these types of clothes. One of the things we were able to corroborate, for example, is Angel Goudelet was wearing these red pants. That was one of the features that came through. Turns out that I think he had a connection to like a local high school and was part of their track team. Our investigators, when they're working through family lines and family trees, they're looking at people who, f- who are within that family line. Oh, wow, look, this guy went to Sandia High School. He matches the description. This is what they, right? So they narrow it down that way. And it doesn't solve the case completely. We would never bring an indictment and there really is just no way that we would try to say, okay, purely on the genetic research, we're going to try and charge this person. But what it does is narrow the field from all, let's say, men of a certain ethnicity between 20 and 30 in the city of Albuquerque, which you can imagine is tens of thousands of people. And now it narrows it down to a specific family line and you go from tens of thousands of people to three or four or five people. And then you go and do additional investigative work, collect that DNA and make that point to point match. Yeah, it, it is fascinating stuff. And, and I know there was another example of a case, a man named Edward Duran, mm-hmm. uh, who was arrested in 2021, matched to a rape kit from 1997. You know, and to be clear, it isn't just those public genealogy databases that are helping investigators, I think, as you've really outlined. It's detectives that really have to do the legwork afterwards to do the validation that, hey, the sample that we have, you know, you mentioned like going and gathering evidence. In this case, we understand there was surveillance, and I'm talking about Edward Duran. In this case, we understand there was surveillance and and the testing of, I think, a used fork or a utensil or something mm-hmm. like that in that case. Yeah, well. that's, that's right. And we, again, the, the investigators, what they do is they take the lead that's generated by forensic genealogy. And then they go about doing all the work that hit a dead end when the, when the case first happened. So they go back and look at employment records. They talk to witnesses. They talk to potential alibis. They talk to people who would have known this person. They're trying to understand what kind of make and model of vehicle they had and whether or not that matches reports from the time. I mean, it's this is very detail-oriented and very intensive investigative work. And and this is why it's it's important for the Department of Justice to get engaged in it, because I don't think most people realize that, you know, there's a reason that they have a show called 48 Hours, right? The vast majority of cases, especially homicide cases, you don't solve it in the first 48 hours, you're really going to run into a dead end. And for the cases that are solved, it's usually pretty obvious, Right. There's a dispute over money. There's a road rage incident. There is a romantic, you know, relationship that's gone sideways. There's a list of things that sort of narrows the likelihood of who might be a suspect in that case. But if you don't fit into one of those categories or you somehow slip through the net because someone didn't make that extra phone call or knock on that extra door, the case can just die right there. And... For us, 
what we impart, what we offer to these local agencies, it's not just the ability to test and the ability to hire genealogists. It's the ability to say, hey, you're a small agency. You've got crime occurring right now. We probably don't want to take you off the street because you're working a homicide that happened last week or last month and they're knocking on your door. But we know you had something from 1982 and we know you're going to have to do hundreds of hours of investigative work and record searches and interviews and all these other things. Let us do that. Let us help you with that. And that's really what the offer is for those local agencies. What I found interesting from just those two cases, Duran and Guru Lay, was that these suspects were identified, charged years later, in Duran's case, 1997 Mm -hmm. to 2021, and these suspects were still living right near in the communities where the crimes took place. So it's like one of those, you know, when you think about it, the criminals were able to just live among us for years and nobody really knew until you had this confirmation. Yeah, And, you know, it's interesting about Goudelet, we did all this work, right? This sort of extensive and detailed genetic work, found a common ancestor, found a distant relative in California. He was living a couple of miles from the crime scene, right? He was, he was right next to that crime scene. And quite frankly, had that, the forensic work not been done, I don't, I don't see any way that the case would have been solved. And here's the thing. If somebody like that engages in a crime like that and they get away with it, there is a decent chance that they're going to continue to commit the same types of crimes in that corner of the community. It could have been years where you start, you know, having a a serial rapist or a serial offender. And Duran fits that bill to a T. I mean, he, he is somebody who, yes, he was on law enforcement's radar for different things. And I think at a time where it predated the collection of some of the DNA samples, but the last time we checked in, they were still connecting him to unsolved rape cases that were 20 and 30 years old. And to your point, they could be the guy across the street. It could be the neighbor down the road. It could be the person you work with every single day. You have no idea yeah. none whatsoever. Because in crimes like this that we're talking about, you know, these, these particular ones were rape cases where the suspect didn't know the victim. So it was, it appeared random by all means. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about some of the cases that your cold case unit is actively focusing on now. There are six cases that we mentioned. You can check them out on your website, which we can link to in our show notes. One of them is from 1984, the case of Thomas and Judy McKnight. The two were found shot to death execution style in the kitchen of their home. They ran the upper McKnight ranch in southeastern Lincoln County. So this case has no sign of forced entry, meaning the suspect may have known the victims, but it has been cold for nearly 40 years now. What led a case like this one to your new cold case unit? Well, really, it's a credit to the local law enforcement agencies and their willingness. Number one, you know, it's like anything in, in law enforcement or anywhere else. It's hard for people to be able to say, look, we, we haven't been able to solve this. We've hit a dead end it takes the willingness of a law enforcement agency to open itself up and say, here are the cases that we haven't been able to crack and then be able to share that information and partner with an outside agency. So it's a real credit to them. I will say that we are, are focused on those agencies who are willing to make that commitment and willing to partner with us. And I've been really impressed and surprised at the diversity. I mean, we have 
law enforcement leaders from across the state, from police departments and sheriff's agencies who have really like taken the moment to dig into their own records, to look into their own evidence vault, to work with our investigators. And my sense is, and my hope, quite frankly, is that if we can solve just even a few of these, the phone will start ringing more and people will start reaching out to us more and more to see if we can add something to these investigations that have gone cold. I want to highlight too, though, that right now we're focused on homicides, but we're also focused on sexual assaults. Goudelet and Duran obviously are people who were sexual predators. And we know that there are still a lot of kits out there, the, the SACI, the rape kit backlog that existed in the state for years and years and years. Most people, you know, we've, we've gotten to a place where we've tested all the kits. Well, guess what? A lot of those kits don't have any CODIS hit, right? So they're exactly in the category of people who fit the profile of somebody we could use or that we could identify using this technology. And here's the other piece that, you know, we, we probably should talk about more in law enforcement. There are kits that have come back with the same offender, not in CODIS, on multiple times, which means there are serial rapists in our community, in our state that have not been apprehended and identified. And that is a real challenge and frankly, an opportunity for law enforcement to use new techniques to do things that we didn't think were possible just a few years ago. Yeah. There's a, certainly a, a lot of work to be done now. And, and just, it is again, fascinating to see how technology sort of brings that now opens the door to solving so much of this stuff. That's just had question marks around it for years. I know that some of these cold cases as well on the list so far have gotten public attention in years past. There's a 1988 cold case of a Mountaineer police officer, Stephen Sandlin, who was shot on a Saturday night inside of the Mountaineer Police Department building in New Mexico. He was on the phone with his girlfriend when an unidentified female is said to have walked into the station before he hung up the phone in that case. Is it fair to assume from some of these cases your office is now looking into that investigators maybe had or have a suspect in mind? And it could be that this new genealogy testing is the key to maybe solidifying years-long suspicions of who that suspect is. Yeah, I mean, I, I can't comment in detail on any particular case, but I think it's fair to say that a lot of times law enforcement have a, a strong suspicion that they know who committed the crime, but they don't have enough to, to present to a prosecutor to actually support a charge. And one of, I think, the advantages of having us as an independent agency come in and look at that and look at the body of evidence is we're coming in without any preconceived ideas. And we, we're coming in without any, any of that historical buildup. And what you want to avoid in law enforcement a lot is confirmation bias and by having independent investigators show up without any of that history and we just start with the science and we start with the blank slate, we can come back and either prove or disprove some of those suspicions that people may have had in the past. But I think that adds, frankly, another layer of protection and safeguards so that we can really focus on the truth and focus on the evidence and, and let that sort of guide our decisions. And how many 
dedicated investigators do you have in this new unit? And do they work directly with the local agency detectives? Yeah, so right now there are three investigators and a supervisor and they are working directly with local law enforcement. So they, they, you know, we, they get in the car, they go down any corner of the state. doesn't matter how big or small the agency is. They sit down with the investigators. They take the entire investigative file and start from scratch, looking at different leads, looking at different interviews, because that actually, that context is really important again for interfacing with the the genealogist, right? We need to know this is the person's age at the time, likely age at the time the crime was committed, because it's not, it's not an exact science. When the genealogist comes back with possibilities, that's what they are. They're possibilities, right? And so, you know, take, take us, for example, we have cousins that live in the same community or about the same age, but some of us are shorter and some of us are taller, or I may have been deployed to the, in the military, or that's the wrong color of car, right? So that's, you need all of that contextual information to narrow the likely field of suspects even further. But we really, we send those agents out and do an offer to do all of that work for the local agents. When it comes to submitting for that data through those genealogy databases and comparing it to say a suspect's DNA, do you have to wait weeks, months? Is the turnaround time long or short? What is the turnaround? Well, time? There, it, frankly, there's been an explosion in this kind of technological approach to solving crimes. And so some of the specialty labs that really do the best work, you know, if, if you were trying to do this two or three years ago, you'd get a return back pretty quickly. Now there are law enforcement agencies all over the country that are waiting to do this. And so that takes a long time. But here, you know, it's interesting it's not the testing. The testing is actually the easiest part. The hardest part is the genealogy. It's somebody who can go back and actually go through public databases and records because it's, it's just like you or I trying to understand our history. And I don't know how much you, you've done it on your own, but it's, you get to a certain point, right? We, our parents and our grandparents and our great grand, but after a certain point, it starts to get a little murky, right? Is it this brother or that brother? When did they get here? When did they leave? And you, and you have to be, you have to have a real expert to be able to walk you through that. And it's finding those experts and then getting them to do that work as quickly as possible. That, that tends to be the biggest challenge. Hmm. wonder what the wait time is for dog genealogy. I can't get over the, is it a chihuahua? Is, I don't know. Yeah, definitely. I'm talking about you, Daisy. <laughs> you know who you are. Um, okay. But jokes aside, do you have enough manpower and staff to add more cold cases and new partnerships in New Mexico? Yeah. I mean, we certainly have the ability to take on additional cases. My, my approach to the creation of this unit and frankly, a lot of the initiatives that we're doing at the AG's office is let's prove to people that we can do this. Let's show them that it'll work. And we took that approach at the district attorney's office. And as you know, when we first went up and started having funding requests and asking for new technology, there was a lot of skepticism. There was a lot of resistance. Well, guess what? You solve a few cold cases, you start cracking investigations and doing things that people couldn't do before. That success breeds more success. My hope is, is that if we can achieve some success in cases that have been sitting unanswered and unaddressed for decades, and we build on that and, and we do so in a way that's supported by the data, we can go back to the lawmakers in Santa Fe 
and say, let's do more. Let's add more to what it is that we're trying to do. One thing that we're also doing in parallel, and you'll be hearing more about this, is is focusing in on crime guns. We are going to be using, again, a scientific approach that is not as widely utilized as it could be to track the casings that we recover at crime scenes to really narrow in and dial in on or the guns that are connected to specific crimes and communities. And it's that kind of approach that we're taking because, you know, we're still a relatively small agency compared to, you know, the, the Albuquerque Police Department is huge. The state police department is huge. The investigators and prosecutors at the Department of Justice, it's a relatively small agency. So what we're trying to do is add really specialized value um, to the kinds of work that frontline law enforcement are doing. And, and it's those sorts of things where we can leverage technology and expertise to try and move the ball forward in terms of public safety, but also transform how frontline law enforcement goes about doing this. My hope is, is that if we do this enough, pretty soon we get every law enforcement agency in the state doing forensic genealogy on their own at scale all the time. And I would love for this aid, this unit to, to not exist anymore because a small police department has learned from our agents how to do it. They know what kind of experts they need. It's built into their process and their protocol. And that's the way we got to think about sort of improving these communities and, and these departments. Is there anything about this new endeavor that maybe we didn't ask about that you want people to understand? I think it's really important. Anytime you use a new technology especially one that involves something as personal and as private as DNA and, and your family history. I think it's incredibly important for people to know that neither my agency or any agency that we work with is getting into the family history of somebody who has not consented and agreed to have that history shared with law enforcement. In other words, just because you're going on Ancestry.com or 23andMe or whatever and sharing that information, that doesn't mean it's automatically accessible to us. And it's incredibly important for people to know that. Um, but they should also know that if they want to, if, if they are interested in not only knowing where they came from, but also helping potentially a victim of crime, allowing law enforcement to, to have a, a look at that information is, is something that could bring um, closure to a family that is grieving. And I think that space where we're trying to figure out the sort of right balance between privacy and public safety is always top of mind for us. But I want, you know, members of the public to understand that this is something that's done in cooperation with people in the public um, and with a, a real abiding respect for people's privacy rights and the concerns that they may have about how we use this technology going forward. If someone has a tip or a question about a cold case that they might want help with who's listening, can they reach out to your office? Do you have a section for that yet? We do. We actually we actually have both a hotline and a link on our website where people can upload tips. They can provide information. They can share anything that they know, either about a particular crime that has been identified and is under investigation by the agency, or they can flag a case for our agency that maybe isn't on our radar yet that says, you know, my, my uncle or, or my father or my grandfather was the victim of a crime in this community decades ago, and we just never found out what happened, and we don't know 
um, can you help us? They can also reach out to us that way. And then we will go and work with that local law enforcement agency. And, and if they're willing to work with us, try and try and provide these resources. Good to know. We can add those links in our show notes and the corresponding web article. A.G. Ronald Torres, thanks for joining us. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Again, a big thanks to Attorney General Raul Torres for talking to us about this new cold case unit as part of the New Mexico Department of Justice. It'll be interesting to see if they get some breakthroughs in these cases they've highlighted, or maybe it's one we haven't heard about yet, and just how long that will take, because I think to the point of this interview, genealogy is so powerful, and the results from these DNA tests are just a game changer when it comes to solving cold case crimes. and really looking forward to seeing what kind of breakthroughs they can achieve. Yeah. And really you, you can see the difference when you hear from or chat with any of the victims of these crimes. He mentioned some of these have been sexual assault victims from, you know, decades ago. And I have had actually a conversation with a sexual assault victim who, whose case happened in the nineties. And she's told me, you know, I, I basically came to the idea that that my case would never be solved. So super fascinating to see this technology play out in the justice system. We will link to some of the cases that the new cold case unit is handling. You can click around and read about each case if you so choose. This episode also was pitched to us by a listener. So feel free to send us your story ideas, people you'd like to hear from on our podcast. You can reach out. I'm gabrielle.burkhardt at krqe.com via email and gburknm on social media. I'm chris.mckee at krqe.com and also at chrismckee TV. Thanks for listening.